The problem with a topic like this is that we live in a culture that doesn't really have a good reference point for idols of any kind. So, you know, maybe we have some sort of philosophical category uh, for it on, you know, on some level. You know, we, we can kind of like understand, you know, idolatry and what that is and just sort of get that it's wrong and bad. And we understand it on some philosophical level. But most of humanity in the West is completely blind to the existence of idols. And this includes the church. Until we see idolatry as spiritual adultery, we will be prone to dismiss it. We'll just, we just won't think it's that big a deal. Until we actually like see it for what it really is. Because we don't have a good reference point for it in, in, in our lives. We don't have a good reference point for it in, in culture. We, we, we will maybe be able to point it out in other people's lives, but in our life, it, ju- it just won't pop up. It won't be something that's very easy to detect. Idolatry is pervasive in every time and in every culture, no less now than 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago. And instead of thinking that was then, this is now, we need to be aware of the tendency within our own hearts to do the same thing. See, as I read scripture, nothing seems to hurt the heart of God more than when his people set other things before him. Um, I want to tell you something about myself you may not know, and that is that I am uh, an avid sports fan. An avid sports fan. Now, um, I mean, as a kid, uh, I mean, I, I was fanatical. Uh, and, and I like to think that maybe I have matured in this area over, over the years, but maybe not, not a lot. Uh, but as a kid especially, I mean, I was a fanatic uh, for, for my teams. I mean, I knew the stats. I knew all the, all the, all the players' names, numbers, you know, of their jersey. I mean, everything uh, about them. I mean, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a lot. And, you know, um, kind of the way this played out is, is when the newspaper would arrive at our house, um, I would grab the newspaper and immediately pull the sports section out of the paper and go, go sit down somewhere and read it front to back every letter. Uh, my parents began to get a little bit concerned about me, uh, and so they put a requirement on me that I had to read like another article in the newspaper you know, from some other section before I could read the sports section. That's how it, how it played out in my life, and uh, I think they were concerned you know, about uh, me not being very well-rounded when it came to current events or something like that. And so they wanted me to kind of, you got to read something else before you can read the sports section. Well, truth be told, I think I picked this up from my dad. Dad loves sports. Dad grew up in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, he, you know, so uh, we're big, big Nebraska fans. And uh, I grew up in Phoenix, so dad and I share a love for, uh, you know, like the Phoenix Suns and other, you know, local area Phoenix teams. And we just have a passion for these things. It's something my dad and I have had in common uh, growing up and, and talking about that. I'll still get a text typically on game days and things like that, and we'll stay in touch. Well, story I wanted to tell you about um, that kind of relates to this is uh, years ago, uh, Dad had to preach on a Sunday morning, and he couldn't find his Bible and looked everywhere. And, and I think uh, what made this especially significant is that, you know, his uh, sermon notes were tucked inside, you know, the, the, the cover of his Bible, and he's got to get out the door, and he can't find his Bible anywhere. And this is, you know, in the age where, you know, you don't just go print off your notes from your computer. You know, these are likely handwritten, you know, uh, and so computers were kind of just coming on the scene. And so uh, dad is uh, obviously concerned, you know, what do I do? Uh, he's looking high and low, searching, tearing the house apart, and uh, someone finally finds his Bible uh, on the dining room table underneath the sports section of the newspaper. <laughs> And this is one of those, like, moments Dad talks about where he just felt conviction from the Holy Spirit, you know. And he, he'd tell you, you know, that sports are great, love sports, all that. Um, um, but uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with, with sports. But in that moment, he just felt this conviction from the Holy Spirit that there was something in his life that was coming before his relationship with God. Right, that there was something in his life that was maybe a higher priority. There was something in his life that was maybe a, a greater passion, at least at that time, uh, than, than his relationship with Jesus. And so he just, he just made it uh, very clear that he was going to reorder the priorities of his heart from that moment forward and make sure that there was nothing else that ever uh, came, uh, became a higher priority in his life other than his relationship with Jesus. So today, what we're doing is we are concluding this sermon series we've been in uh, called Love and Light. We've been in this all summer long, you know, learning, teaching, growing through the book of 1 John 
together. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to be discussing an old, old topic. And the reason why I even bring that story of my dad, you know, up is because today we're going to be discussing, you know, how idolatry uh, has been, you know, a harmful reality for the people of God in, in every age since the beginning of time. Uh, I, I, think, I think as much now as ever. And so we're going to talk about that here uh, this morning. And, and what I want to do is, is specifically discuss one sentence in the book of 1 John. One sentence, that's it. It's a significant sentence because it's the final sentence of this entire book. And, you know, of all the things that John has, has written, all the things that, you know, we have learned all summer long, of all the things that he has addressed, readdressed, taught and retaught, he, he boils it all down to, to this one statement at the end. And, and I just think it's just interesting to me. Of all the things he could have written, he writes this. And it's the final sentence of this incredible letter. The final sentence of, you know, this series that we've been in. And it's this right here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. He says, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. That's an interesting way to sign off uh, a letter or... Uh, a sermon, you, you know, that he has sent out to these churches that he's pastoring there in the first century. And um, it's incredibly interesting to see that he, he, he ends the letter this way. Of all the things he could have said, you know, of all the things that were likely on his mind at the time, all the things that were likely on his heart, this is his final appeal to these people. And at first glance, this seems like a strange way to maybe wrap up, you know, a letter like this. But you got to remember, you know, he has spent an enormous amount of time you know, uh, reminding these, these early Christians of, you know, the dangers of embracing the false Jesus that many people were teaching at the time. And, and so there were really two ideas being taught, you know, at, at this time that John is, is, is trying to address and fight against, two issues that, that, that were kind of weaving their way into the church that people were embracing that were highly problematic. One was this idea that, you know, uh, Jesus never really came in the flesh, Jesus, Jesus never came in bodily form, that he, he only, you know, came, you know, in, in spirit form. He was just some phantom spirit. So when you looked at Jesus and saw him, you might have thought you saw him in, in physical flesh, but really he was just in spirit form. They taught that, that any deity, which they believed Jesus was, could not suffer. And so they taught that Jesus had to have, have um, you know, switched bodies with somebody else, and that person went to the cross instead of him. Well, this is, like, highly problematic it undercuts the good news of the gospel. It undercuts one of the core tenets of our faith that Jesus is the substitutionary atonement for our sin, you know, um, that he is the sacrifice, that his blood was shed for you and for me. And so it, it's a massive problem. Uh, the other issue that John is addressing in, in this book, just to remind you, is uh, this idea that was being taught that Jesus only cares about your spirit. He doesn't care uh, about your body, that your body is, is evil and corrupt. And so as long as you believe the right things about Jesus, uh, you can do whatever you want with your body. Well, this is obviously highly problematic, but it's actually something that, that, that is, is probably embraced, maybe, maybe I would say more now than, than ever, this idea of Gnosticism that was being taught, that as long as you believe the right things about Jesus, you can do whatever you want with your life. Massive problems. And so what John is trying to show us, what he's trying to tell us, what he's trying to tell these early Christians is that idolatry is basically when you have, you've either embraced a false god or you've embraced a false idea about the true God. And this is why he warns these early Christians, uh, you know, about not just the idolatry that exists out there somewhere in culture. This is why he warns them about the idolatry that can exist within them if they're not careful. And he says, keep yourselves away from it. Keep yourselves away from it. Now, the main problem that the Apostle John is, is really dealing with and addressing, uh, you know, at, at the time, and what is still true today is this, if you're taking notes, that many of us are becoming more shaped by the rhythms of culture than we are by the gospel, and as a result, our hearts are just prone to wander. Our hearts are just prone to wander. I think this is one of the biggest issues, one of the biggest problems, especially in the Western church, is that we're actually becoming more shaped by, by culture than we are by the, the good news of, of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. And, and as a result, like our hearts are just going to be pulled in the, in, in the direction of the things that are forming us, the things that are shaping us into their likeness, right? So if you're being shaped and formed into the likeness of Jesus, you're going to be pulled in that direction. But if you find yourself being more shaped and formed into the likeness of this world and culture, you're going to be pulled in that direction. And so I would just say that a wandering heart or a wandering life, you know, 
has a way of, of sort of leading us into the very things that, that want to overtake the place that is intended uh, for God to occupy in our lives. It just has a way of leading us into these things that, 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 that then are going to start like vying for that top spot, the room, the, the place that God is meant to occupy in our lives. And the Bible just repeatedly tells us that, that God just won't settle for that. Right? The Bible repeatedly tells us that he, he refuses to settle for a reduced role in your life. That he, he refuses to settle for second place. I mean, this is, all throughout Scripture we see this. Right? That this is, this is just, it's, it's just something he refuses to, to do. And so, you know, um, this is why I think I could get, all, I, I could pretty much get on board with this idea that, that unless Jesus is, is number one in your life, you might not be really, really a believer. Not, not to shame anybody, but just so that you know that, he, that God refuses to take any place other than first place in your life. He refuses to take a reduced role. And, and this is kind of what we see just woven throughout Scripture. The first place we even just see this really, uh, one of the first places I should say we see this addressed is in Exodus chapter 20. Um, if you're taking notes, is it, verses 3 through 5. It says, God is saying this, and he says, You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You should not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So these obviously are the first two commandments God gives to Moses on Mount Sinai when he went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. These are the first two commandments right here. And they're kind of a big deal. They're kind of a big deal. Uh... God wants first place. And he's not willing to negotiate those terms. The problem with a topic like this, just, just to be real this morning, the problem with a topic like this is that we live in a culture that doesn't really have a good reference point for idols of any kind. So, you know, maybe we have some sort of philosophical category uh, for it on, you know, on some level, you know, we, we can kind of like understand, you know, idolatry and what that is and just sort of get that it's wrong and bad. And we understand it on some philosophical level, but most of humanity in the West is completely blind to the existence of idols, and this includes the church. Like, we don't have huge statues in our public squares that we all gather around to worship. So the concept of idolatry uh, can, can feel a bit abstract. It can feel like, like something that maybe, maybe exists sort of like in, in you know, Eastern religions and other parts of the world, but we just don't see it as dominant in you know, Western culture. We don't see these massive statues like we read about in Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar built for himself. You know, we don't see this played out. We don't see these Asherah poles and all these things that we read about in the Old Testament that had to be torn down because they were gods that were constructed to be worshipped you know, by the people of God. And so it can feel a bit abstract. But what I want you to see this morning is that idolatry is something that is present and very real even in our Western culture. So rather than just dismiss idolatry uh, as some sermons maybe you've heard or concepts that just sort of hang around the church, you know, we talk about this every once in a while or we read about it in Scripture, but just not really having a good frame or reference for it, I want to put forth um, that idolatry is a persistent and harmful reality. It's a persistent and harmful reality. I want to kind of um, show you um, how it shows up in the biblical narrative uh, first. So consider the way that the serpent first tempted Adam and Eve. Look at this with me in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. It says this, For God knows, this is the serpent speaking to to Eve, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is, this is in the Garden of Eden some 6,000 some years ago. And at the very beginning of humanity's existence on planet Earth, what we see right here is an invitation to make an idol out of ourself and to make ourselves equal with God. This is the invitation right here in the Garden, to make an idol out of ourself and to make ourselves equal with God. Well, I don't know if you realize this, but the same temptation is still being whispered to all of us today. This idea of, of worshiping ourselves in some sense, making ourselves equal to God, like in our life. N.T. Wright says it like this, often you only realize that idolatry is happening when sin happens 
But when sin happens, it shows you you've been listening to the voice of the serpent all along and doing what it tells you. If you're taking notes, the entire biblical narrative reveals the proneness of the human heart towards idolatry. Several cases, let me just give you a couple. Genesis chapter 31, we see the story of Jacob and his family. He, he has been working for his father-in-law, Laban, and um, has been feeling like he's been being mistreated. And so he decides uh, when Laban is gone to take his family and all of his possessions and to leave without notice. And so he takes his, 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 uh, his family, his, his multiple wives at the time, and, and Rachel is one of them. And so when they leave Laban's house, what does she do? She grabs all of the household idols, the household gods of her father Laban and brings them with her, brings them with them. Well, Laban finally catches up to them and they have this, this big sort of come to, it wasn't, would have been Jesus at the time, but come to somebody meeting, you know, and they, they, uh, they, they just, they, they begin to sort of have it out. Laban and Jacob comes, comes to find out, uh, Laban says, you know, that Rachel has stolen the household gods. Uh, and, and so, you know, they, they kind of make amends that Jacob's going to go one way, Laban's going to go the other, but he wants his idols back, right? We, we see this happen over and over throughout the Gospels. Exodus chapter 32, we see a famous story of the golden calf that is constructed by Aaron while Moses is on, on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God. I mean, think about it. These people have seen every kind of supernatural miracle you can imagine. And yet when Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, they become impatient, don't they? They take the spoils of Egypt that are intended to really build an economy for them, to build a way of life for them, and they come to Aaron and they, they, they tell him that they want to melt all of this down to create an idol, and it's the golden calf. Listen to me. Idolatry is pervasive in every time and in every culture, no less now than 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago. And instead of thinking that was then, this is now, we need to be aware of the tendency within our own hearts to do the same thing. You see, as I read Scripture, nothing seems to hurt the heart of God more than when his people set other things before him. Wouldn't you agree? Like, it seems to be the thing that gets at the heart of God. It seems that we read about God in the Old Testament, it seems to be the thing that, that, that really troubles him. He talks more than once about being this jealous God because he's jealous for our affection Jealous for our attention, and he's, he's, he's jealous when other things become a higher priority than him. And so repeatedly throughout Scripture, God makes this correlation between idolatry and adultery. Do you notice that? Both of these are forms of unfaithfulness, but he repeatedly makes this correlation between the two. An example of this is in Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. This is, this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and it says, Then in the nations where they have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me. How I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols, they will loathe them, themselves for the evil they have done and for their detestable uh, practices. It's just one, one of many right here. One of the many places where we see um, God's people worship other gods, and as a result, God describes them as, a, as an adulterous people. Ultimately, the biblical narrative regarding the people of God is that their hearts were divided. Isn't that true? The biblical narrative regarding the people of God is that their hearts were, were divided. They wanted God's on, God on their terms. They wanted God, but they also wanted all of these other things. And I would just say this, that in our day, in 2021, until we see idolatry as spiritual adultery, we will be prone to dismiss it. We'll just, we just won't think it's that big a deal. Until we actually like, see it for what it really is. Because we don't have a good reference point for it in, in, in our lives. We don't have a good reference point for it in, in culture. We, we, we will maybe be able to point it out in other people's lives, but in our life, it, j it just won't pop up. It won't be something that's very easy to detect. We're going to be prone to dismiss it. Bruce Ellis Benson says this. He says, not only are we capable of creating idols and worshiping them, we are likewise capable of being almost completely blind to their existence. Worse yet, we are often quite capable of providing a defense and sometimes a remarkably respectable, respectable defense 
for why our particular idols are worthy or even orthodox. Our recognition of idols for what they are is often selective. Most of us have reasonably well-developed idol detectors when it comes to others, yet it is probably safe to say that we all, or that all of us have our own particular repertoire of idols. So it's amazing how we can like see other people, you know, and, and, and the problems in their life. You know, isn't, isn't this how, how we, we are? Like we can go, man, they got their priorities a little out of whack, right? Like look, what are they doing? I can't believe they haven't been to church in, you know, six months. What is going on? Like clearly their priorities are out of whack. It's easy for us to, to like detect this problem in other people's lives. It's much more difficult for us to detect it in ours. We, we, we kind of make excuses for it. We, we, we just sort of pacify it. We just say, well, you know, um, that's just the way it is. That's, that's my hobby. That's just the way life works. And what I want, what I want um, you to see this morning, if you're taking notes, is that today we want to not only define idolatry, but we also want to identify the idolatry that exists both around us and within us. That's what we want to do this morning, okay? We're going to define it, but we want to see, like, where is it at? Where does it play itself out? Obviously, it's around us at times, but, but maybe even more importantly, when is it within us? When does it show up inside of us? So let's start with defining what we're really talking about this morning with this question. What are idols? What are idols? In a, in a modern context, right? Uh, really, uh, I mean, the title of the message this morning is Modern Idolatry. So, so in a modern context, what are idols? Well, the familiar idols of culture, let's just go there first. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty obvious that things like possessions would be up there on the list, right? Uh, as something that can supplant God or, or, or take the place of God in our life. Uh, this, this need to acquire, accumulate, and accumulate, and accumulate. Possessions for sure become a massive issue, uh, that, that, that can separate us from God or become a, a, a problem in our relationship with God. Pleasure uh, in every form uh, it can be an idol that people worship, that people uh, put into an a, uh, inappropriate place in their life. Every kind of ple- pleasure you can imagine. Um, I, think, I think perhaps one of the most dominant idols of our day is the idol of comfort. We, we think that we're supposed to be comfortable. It's part of the American way. We think that God just, just, you know, wants us to be comfortable. And, and I just struggle to find that just about anywhere in, uh, in, in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But it's one of the massive idols that, that I think we just are, are unable to detect and even more so unable to resist. Um, power. Drawn to power. Um, needing power, people would be another, another kind of cultural idol, especially the celebrity culture, you know, um, in, in general. But I also think, um, you know, loved ones, family, uh, significant others become a thing that, that, that we just elevate to an inappropriate place in our life where oftentimes they come before our relationship with God. Uh, and, then, and then one, just to kind of maybe offend you, uh, actually, I'm just kidding, but, but uh, honestly, patriotism, um, can become uh, a, a, an idol. Um, it, the worship of our national identity, uh, political ideologies, um, things like this can, can become so out of focus, so out of whack that these become things that, that are in an inappropriate place in our life. Um, not necessarily inappropriate to be patriotic, but it can be highly inappropriate when these things become uh, um, a focus in our life um, that, that's out of, out of balance. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything which absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Therein lies the problem. It's the priorities of our life and the priorities of our heart. Um, if, I was, if I was to define idolatry just kind of based on, on this sort of definition from Tim Keller, I'd, I'd say this. It's the turning of good things into God things. It's the turning of good things into God things. The, 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 the turning of, of 
of things that aren't necessarily inherently wrong or evil in, into things that now occupy the place that, 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 is, that is meant for God in our life. Idolatry is when something overtakes the place of God. God is, is usually, he's still there, uh, but he no longer occupies the top spot. Like I rarely find people, especially in the church, who, 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 who deal with, with uh, uh, idols or issues in their life like this who, who have like, gotten rid of God altogether. I mean, usually they're, they're, like, they're like normal, everyday Christian people who sit in seats just like you every single week, and uh, all of a sudden, God is revealing to them that there's, there's some priorities in their life that are out of whack. So God is usually still there when this is going on. He's just no longer occupying the top spot. In any form of idolatry in your life, it's always looking to deceive you and distort reality so that it can destroy your life. You, you understand that? And sometimes that thing is money. Let's just, let's just call it what it is. Sometimes that thing is money. A vision of financial success. And so maybe, maybe you come from a poor background and you feel the need to like go out and prove yourself and show everybody that you can make a name for yourself and a life for yourself. Maybe you come from a wealthy background and now you feel the pressure to just not screw this up. You feel the pressure now to, like, to, to sort of perpetuate the, the, the wealth in, you know, in your generation that has been seen in previous generations in your family, and so now there's this pressure to not screw it up. And so money can become a massive problem in people's lives when it, when it gets out of balance. Sometimes the idol is control. We've talked about control so many times you know, uh, from this, the pulpit here at this church, but the need to, to be in charge. Uh, our fears sort of create this reality where we just have to be in charge. We can't let anybody else be in control, uh, especially God, especially God. Sometimes it's our image. I said before, sometimes it's our family. I have seen so many, so many parents just, just uh, um, love their kids too much. <laughs> too much. Like, there comes a point where it's like, that's, that's too much. That's, that's, that's a lot of love, you know. Uh, you know, <laughs> we need to scale that back a bit. Scale that back a bit. But being honest, being honest, like, like um, we're, you know, um, uh, the idol of our family where, where we just, we, we want our kids to be so successful and to be good and we want to give them everything they want and we just, we just kind of jump when they say jump and do what they say needs to be done and, and um, family can become a problem. In-laws, outlaws, however you want to describe them, I mean, all of the family extended can be an issue where, where you're dealing with um, a misappropriation of this in your life. Um, Jesus does a great job of redefining family right? He redefines family. He doesn't, he doesn't define family as, as much as like blood as he does about those who are um, giving their lives to the kingdom of God. That's what gives this like commonality between them. And he says like, like, like the ones who do the work of God are my family. And, and you know, I just thought I'd say that. So sometimes it's our sexuality. I mean, honestly, especially in this culture, Right now, um, sexuality is for sure an idol. It's, it's, it's something that the church struggles to even know how to address, struggles to even know how to, how to talk about. Um, I think many of you probably have found yourselves in conversations about this. I mean, it's, it's, it's a um, pervasive topic right now in culture. Uh, it's everywhere. It's rampant. And, like, how do we talk about it? And, and, and for sure in secular culture, it's this massive um, identity piece for people. It's this idol in, in lots of people's lives for sure. Sometimes this idol can be our, our own intelligence, thinking uh, that we're so smart. Um, sometimes it's our need for approval, quite honestly. You, you ever found that to be true in your life, just your need for people to like you? Your need to just please others? Um, and how you're unable to just, to just sort of handle yourself if you know that people don't like you? Um, it for sure becomes uh, an idol. It can become uh, something in our life that is just in an inappropriate place in our life. There are so many things that can happen in our hearts. Wouldn't you agree? Good cultural things like career and financial security and, and many of these things we've already mentioned, when elevated to first place, can create a complex situation that is hard uh, to resist and hard to detect. It just seems so normal. It seems like this is just the way life is. This is the way it's meant to be. This is the way it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go. Before I, before I move on, let me, let me just say, say this too. I don't know if there is a, a, a larger 
more, more, more pervasive and problematic idol out there today than personal autonomy. Um, I, I don't know if there's a, like a greater issue, a bigger idol right now in, in Western culture, in the church even, than personal autonomy. This idea that I can do, I can do this myself. Uh, I am the authority of my life. I get to determine what is true for me. Like that's, that's how most of, of humanity functions right now. Even those in the church. Incredibly hard to detect. To detect. Even harder to resist. Uh, I've shared this quote with you before. I don't have it in, in, on the screen, but Mark Sayers says this. He says, what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of ourselves as the greatest authority. And that's really what we're experiencing right now, like, like more than ever, is the enthroning of our own selves as the greatest authority. We determine what is right for us. We determine what is true for us. Um, there is no, uh, no one outside of ourselves for, to whom we are accountable for our choices and decisions in life. If you're taking notes this morning, catch this thought. Whatever your heart clings to is your idol and has become your functional God. Whatever your heart clings to is your idol and has become your functional God. You may not re- realize this, but you can be a believer in Jesus and have other things that essentially function as your God. Like you can still do the church thing. You can still believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and all of that and still have other things in your life that function as, as your God. There can be other things that provide for your needs. Other things you put your hope in for your needs to be met. There can be other things that, uh, that provide peace for you. So as long as you have these things, these things exist in your life, it, it provides a, a level of peace for you. So it's, it's, it's your, become your functional God because it's providing something for you that God has intended to provide. Other things maybe, maybe that provide happiness for you, that, that, that like alter your mood or put you in a happy place, like it becomes inappropriate because these are things that God is meant to do in your life. And so when someone other than God is acting, acting as our functional God, listen to me, that God will become the very thing that shapes you into its likeness. Anything, no, no matter what it is. And the problem is that we will ultimately become formed by the very things that we worship. It, it, like it's true, like I talked as we got started this morning about just you know how much of a sports freak I was as a kid and have tried to kind of mature in that as I've gotten older. But man, I mean, I had like every jersey. I had every hat, you know, like I had posters all over my wall. Like I was formed into the image of the things that I worshiped. And it may not be that obvious for you. It may be more difficult for you to detect, but this is what happens. It's massive, massive, and it's highly problematic. Idols have a very real power to enslave us. And we're not just talking about theology here or Bible verses here, okay? We are talking about spiritual realities that can impact our lives very, very deeply. Romans 125, the Apostle Paul writes this. And, uh, and he says this, it says, he says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator uh, who is forever praised. Amen. I want you to look at this verse with me for a moment. I want you just to take a glance at this scripture, and I want you just to think, okay, like what, what pops out? Like what do you notice about this scripture? Like, let me just give you a second. What do you notice here? Do you notice how these people that Paul's writing to, do you notice how their lives have become completely disordered? Do you notice that? They have flipped the order. The created things are now coming before the creator. It's, 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 a, it's a massive problem. Their lives have become completely disordered. I mean, th- this speaks to, you know, Exodus 20 that we've already read where, where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and what, is, what does Paul say here? That they, they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, that, that, that the created things were coming before the creator. It is possible that this happens in your life more than you'd like to admit. I wonder, have the created things come before the creator in your life? And um, I don't have this on the screen, but if you're taking notes, you know, Scripture is all about getting our lives correctly ordered. 
all about getting our lives correctly ordered. Exodus 20, I already mentioned, but God says, have no other gods. There is, a, there is an order to how this works. There's a priority list, and he's at the top spot. Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew 27, two places, um, says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. All of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is, um, he is speaking and he says, to those who are listening, he says, don't run after the things that pagans run after. Don't run after the things that they chase and, and try to pursue. But he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you as well. He says there's a priority. There, there's a way this is supposed to work. And oftentimes what we find in our lives is there's been a great disordering of, of priorities in our heart. And scripture's all about making sure that our hearts are ordered correctly. An idol is anything we put before God in our values, affections, and minds. Mark chapter 10 is a story that I want to I share with you for a moment here. And, and this is a story, like, I, I was thinking about this yesterday, and I'm like, I don't know that there is a story in the New Testament um, that I have, I have, like, referenced or specifically taught on more over the years than this story right here. And maybe outside of the, the, the obviously, the crucifixion and, and resurrection of Jesus, but uh, it's, it's, it's probably uh, more important. But... Um, Mark chapter 10 is, is, is a fascinating story. It's always been a fascinating story to me because for me, it, it, it always puts me face to face with my own heart. It always puts me face to face with, 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 with my own stuff. Um, and it says this, it says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. In verse 22, it says, At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, I read this story, and it's pretty obvious to me that the rich young ruler wants Jesus. Like, he wants Jesus. I mean, he comes up to Jesus for this very reason, right? He wants an eternal life. He wants Jesus, he's attracted to Jesus. He's drawn to Jesus. There is something about Jesus that he is attracted to. And so this rich young ruler, he walks up to Jesus. He comes to him in this place and wants to know what's it gonna take. But the problem for the rich young ruler in this story is that there is something else that he ultimately wanted more than he wanted Jesus. And I don't know if he ever would have admitted that out loud until Jesus asked him to do something that his heart wasn't ready to do. I don't know if those words would have ever come out of his mouth prior to this encounter with Jesus. Like many of us, you know, who, who maybe have things in our life that are difficult to detect, things in our life that are, that are obviously difficult to resist. I, I don't know if these words would ever come out of our mouth until Jesus put his finger on this very thing and said, I want that, I want that, I want that. And therein lies the problem, right? If you're taking notes, idolatry will always choke out any relationship with God. Always. Every time. Every time. Anything that comes before your relationship with God, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's your career, if it's your, if it's your relationships. Like I said, if it's your kids, if it's certain passions and hobbies in your life. Idolatry always has a way of choking out any relationship with God. Have you ever noticed this to be true? Have you ever become so consumed by other things, driven by other things, that you just, you just feel like this distance, like with God, you just feel like, man, me and God, like there's just like, I feel kind of dry, I feel kind of flat spiritually. Because as other things become a higher priority in your life, it's gonna choke out your relationship with God every time. And God just refuses to take any other place. 
He refuses to take any other place in your life than first place. Maxie Dunman says this, so an idolater is not one who has not known God, but one who having known God refuses to glorify him or devises some substitute in life for the praise and glory and worship that belong to God. Like it's, it's, it's just as much in here as it is out there. And that's exactly what the Apostle John is getting at as he closes out this letter. He's, he's trying to warn them, not just about idolatry that exists out there somewhere in culture, even though that is true, he's trying to get them to recognize that idolatry can exist within them if they aren't careful. And to keep themselves away from it at all costs. And I guess I just wonder, you know, for you, I wonder for me, you know, like is there anything that we have set up in our heart this way? Anything. Anything. Earlier on in this great letter from the Apostle John in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, he writes this. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. John repeatedly throughout this letter, he talks about the priorities of our hearts, the, the, the correct ordering of our lives so that Jesus is the most important thing. So that Jesus is the most important thing. Why don't you look at this, this question with me on the screen as we close here this morning. How do we keep ourselves from idols in a modern secular age? How do we do this? How do we do this? Like, we know it's wrong, right? We, let's just all agree on that. We know that it's not something that should be found in our lives, but it does. It pops up. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we fight something that's not as easy to see? How, how, how do we fight something that, that's very hard to detect in us at times? And how do we fight something that's hard to resist? I think that I don't have this, this, this comment here fully developed. I'm just going to share it with you because I got some other things I want to I do to sort of answer this question. But I think one of the big ways we keep ourselves from idols in a modern secular age is by being a part of the church. It's, it's one of, the, one of the, the, the biggest ways we do this. Like, I, I don't need you guys here uh, on a Sunday morning so that I can feel better about myself. You know? Like, I don't need that. Like, I, I'm pretty secure in who I am, and I'm trusting God with with our church anyway, you know, and, and he's, he's growing it. He's doing what he wants with it on his time. And, you know, we're trusting our, uh, you know, trusting in the Lord to do the things that only he can do here. I don't need you here for me. I need you here for you. Like, like the community that, that of, of the saints, the being together as the church, the hearing of the word of God taught, the worshiping together is one of the ways that we keep ourselves from idols in a modern secular age because the church exists, quite honestly, to be a counterformative community to confront our idolatry. It's a counterformative community. Like, that's what's going on here. Like, like I get you how many, how many hours a week? Like an hour and a half maybe? Like we get your kids maybe three hours? Uh, how, many, how many times a month? And, you know, if you consider Wednesdays, and, and what we try to do, quite honestly, just, just to show you our cards, is we, we have an, uh, an agenda to try to deprogram everything that has been programmed into you by secular culture all week long. That's, that's, what, that's why the church matters so much, guys. It's, it's, it's the way that we keep ourselves from idols in a modern secular age. We learn together that like the thing I thought was acceptable and okay actually isn't. The thing that seems normal, the things that like pull me away in this direction actually aren't acceptable and okay. Where else do I learn that? Where else do I, do I, do I hear that teaching? Where else do I hear this stuff that is meant to set me free from bondage to, to, to idols? in my life.
yeah. And I just, I, just, I just love you, like, you know, and just want you to, I want you, I want you to be free from this stuff. I don't want you to make church a priority in your life. I, I, I just want you to make it a priority. It is the thing. It is the thing. We also keep ourselves from idols in a secular age by continually asking ourselves a few questions um, that I want to share with you right here. And look at these on the screen with me. The first question is this. What do I find the most joy in? So ask yourself that question right now. What do I find, what, what do, I find the most joy in? What do you find the most joy in in life? And it may not necessarily be wrong. We just talked about how idolatry is really the turning of good things into God things. So where do you find the most joy? Because sometimes, sometimes this can reveal to us what we worship. Sometimes. Sometimes the answer to this question can reveal to us if something else has um, taken over the place that God is meant to occupy in our lives. Second question for you. What does my heart treasure? So question one, what do I find the most joy in? And question two, what does my heart treasure? Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does your heart treasure? Like, on, like honestly, like, like if you, I mean, I, I'm not telling you to like give the answer that you, you want you like your pastor to hear or what you hope God hears. Like what is like the truth to this question in your life? What does your heart actually treasure? And it might reveal to you that there are some things in your life that are out of order. And the third question I would say that you have to start asking yourself is this. Is this good for my soul? Is this good for my soul? Not can I have it? Not is it okay? Not is it wrong? Not is it bad? Not can I afford it, or is there anything like inherently evil or wrong about it, but the question I think that, that, that people in the church hardly if ever ask themselves is this question right here, is this good for my soul? Is it actually good for my soul? Is it, is it, is it healthy for me? Is, it, is, it, is there any time in my life when I tell myself no? Is there any time in my life where I could and yet I don't because I just, I just know that saying yes to that could, could potentially lead me to a place where it's just not good for my soul and I want to keep my, my soul, I want to keep my heart, I want to keep it all right before God. I want to make sure there's nothing else that, that gets in the way. I want to make sure that there's no sports section on top of my Bible. I want to make sure that my, my, my life is ordered correctly before the Lord. Is it good for my soul? Is it good for my soul? I mean, I talk to many people, you know, who go and do all kinds of things um, acquire all sorts of things. You know, people in our church and outside our church, I've been pastoring a long time. Rarely ever does anybody come to me and say, hey, Pastor Jordan, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Do you think that this might be good for my soul? Or do you think this might, this might cause problems? Like never has that ever happened. Why? Because perhaps the biggest idol we're facing today is personal autonomy. I get to do what I want. I want to do what I want. I'm going to determine what's right for me. I'm going to determine what's true for me. Whenever do we ask this question right here? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, but should I? And is it right? Is it good for my soul? Would you stand with me this morning? Yeah. Sometimes I get to give you a message that's all about love and grace, and sometimes I have to give you a message like this. But I hope you understand that your pastor loves you, loves you very, very much, and what I want you to see this morning more than anything is that God is at war for the love of your heart. He is at war for the love of your heart. You see the verse right before this one? Or two, two before the one we, we, we looked at today? 1 John five nineteen says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. There is a real battle for your heart. There's a real battle for your affection. There's a, there's a real battle going on. God is at war for the love of your heart. And the good news about this is that Jesus, listen, Jesus has, has, has power over every idol, and he wants to set you free. 
He has authority, he has power over every idol and he wants to set you free, but there's a real battle going on for the affection of your heart, the love of your heart. And I wanna just take a moment here. If you would just bow your heads with me for a second. You would just take a moment here. I know we all got a long holiday weekend and we're looking forward to all those plans, but don't let this moment right here pass you by. And I wonder, is it possible that there are some things in your life or some things in your heart that are misplaced. Good things that have been turned into God things. It might be work for you. It might be money. It might be your family. It might be comfort. It might be entitlement. It might be personal autonomy. But is it possible that there is something in your life, in your heart, that has been misplaced? And if that's you today and you recognize that, there, there, there are some, some issues with the priorities of your heart. Can I, just, can I just see your hand here today? Okay, I see all, I mean, every, I mean, guys, it's everywhere. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. It's literally everywhere in this room. Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to only keep your hands up if this is something you want, you want God to free you from. Like, only keep your hands up if this is something right now you want God to, to, to bring freedom in your life for. Father, we ask in this room that every idol in our, in our heart that has set itself up against you and the authority of Jesus, that you would, you would bring down right now, you would humble it, you would melt it in Jesus' name, that these idols would become nothing before you anymore. God, where there has been, uh, where there has been uh, addiction, where there has been stronghold, where there has been issues in our lives, chasing after, serving after, all of these other things. Lord, I pray now is a moment of, of not turning back to these other things, but today is a moment of, of giving you all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God. In Jesus' name, God, would you come and just do the things in this room that only you can do. I pray for every person in the sound of my voice that freedom would come right now. Every idol that has set itself up in our life, God, I pray freedom in Jesus' name. Anything, God, anything that's in the way, Lord, would you just begin to free our hearts up so that we can be the people you want us to be. And just wherever you're at right now in this room, wherever you're at, I want you just to, to very quietly, even internally if you want, or you can just say it quietly in front of you, I want you just to name that idol. Just name it. Just say, God, this is what it is right here. It's my need to be in control. It's approval of others. Just, just begin to name what that is right now and ask God to set you free. Jesus, come and do it right now. Just, just verbalize it. Admit it to yourself that this is, this is what it is. Now, God, come right now and do the things that only you can do, the things that only you can do in this place. Freedom for every person under the sound of my voice today. In Jesus' name, amen.